Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. This will be our second study through the book of Haggai together, where we're going through the historical background and we continue to lay that foundation. We're going to start by reading Haggai chapter one, verse one. And if you have a Bible, please feel free to follow along. All you'll need for this is a King James Bible, and uh, we'll study the word of God together. Verse one, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying. So we pick back up in the second year of Darius, king, king of Persia. Now, we want to we rewind back to where we left off, and, and we're going to continue to kind of trek our way through to how we got here at this point in time. If you didn't see the last broadcast, this broadcast may not make a whole lot of sense until you go back and read that and and understand why we pick up in the book of Daniel all of a sudden when we're talking about Haggai the prophet. But if you would turn your Bible to Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, and uh, we'll find an interesting connection with Darius here. <clears throat> Darius the king has in Daniel chapter five. Uh, verses 30 and 31, I believe it is, da- Darius the king, uh, an, an emissary sent in by by Cyrus, and you'll probably hear me repeat this several times because it's relevant to our, to our situation here. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is sent in to Babylon, and he takes out Belshazzar, and then he himself becomes king of the Chaldeans, and, and that is verified here in verse 1 of chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to, to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here we are in the first year of his reign as king of the Chaldeans. That is distinctly different from his his time reigning as king of of Persia. At this point in time, Cyrus is king of Persia. Babylon has become part of 
of that kingdom. Uh, it has become engulfed into that kingdom. Cyrus sent Darius in to take out Belshazzar and, and thereby assuming control of that kingdom. Now, I, I believe it's the same Darius. Uh, there are some, again, it's not something I'd be dogmatic about or that I would argue about. I think the Darius in Haggai chapter one is the same Darius that we read about in, in the book of Daniel. And um, and I can go through and, and eventually we'll show you all those connections. There are some problems with it as well. So it's not definitive. It's not something I'd argue with people about, but I but I have, I believe some solid grounding as to as to why I believe it's the same Darius. Now, the people that provide you the historical background on this, I mean, secular people, uh, they go through and they try and name who each one of these kings are. And then after giving you this long drawn out spiel about each king, they end by telling you, but we don't know. <laughs> so if you run the cross references, there there's ample evidence that they could be the same person. And that's important to note. Now, there there are some inconsistencies as well. But the the evidence that points to them being the same person, I believe, is a little more overwhelming. And the few the few points of inconsistency don't outweigh the the idea that it could be the same king. So that, that's that's my opinion. That's my estimation on this thing. Now, as we noted, Darius at this point is an emissary of Cyrus. Cyrus is king over Persia, which was a massive and spread out empire. I mean, it it just engulfed uh, a, a huge portion of the earth at this point in time. And um, Babylon was made part of that kingdom through the work of Darius. Um, of course, that night, Belshazzar decided to have a, a, a liquor party and drink uh, a liquor, you know, hard drink and, and wine and alcohol out of the vessels of God, which drinking alcohol of any sort is ungodly and a terrible idea in the first place. But then when you compound that by insulting God and using his vessels to do so, and, and there's a there's a strong connection there, an idea there that you want to keep in mind. We are the vessels of God. And and it's a beautiful picture. You don't want to put alcohol in the vessels of God. That 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 wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. And so, uh, just a, a nice, a beautiful little picture there. Now, I'll turn to Daniel chapter six, and we'll see the extent of this Daniel. So, this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So. So Darius and Daniel had a strong, very tight-knit relationship. And uh, you read in Daniel 6 about what happened there, and we will eventually go back to that and, and go through that uh, in more detail because it's relevant to who Darius was a little bit later. Right now, I'm just trying to get us up to Haggai chapter 1 and how we came to be in this place at this time. And and so there was a close relationship between Darius and Daniel. Daniel is, Darius understands that Judah on that side of the river in Jerusalem, that's Daniel's people. And and uh, that plays a relevant role later in, in the letter that was sent to Darius and his reaction to that letter. So what we'll, again, we'll come back to that later. That's not our, our point now. Now, uh, again, some will differ on who these kings are. It's not worth arguing over. Um, you know, biblically, it's almost impossible to definitively tell when you get into these Persian kings and the Babylonian kings, and um, it, you know, even the kings that ruled over uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, it, it can get a little murky from time to time. Uh, it, which means to me that it wasn't that important for God to clarify to us. 
that that really wasn't the point. So it's not worth arguing over. It's not worth fighting over. It's it's not that big a deal. So now, since I believe their reigns coincide, then this would place uh, this would place a you know certain significance on the reign of Darius as well as in the reign of Cyrus. Something happened kind of at the same time. So Darius goes in, he takes over Babylon, becomes king of the Chaldeans, which then makes Cyrus, king of Persia, king over that entire empire. So uh, the Bible notes something that happens in the first year of the reign of Darius, as well as in the first year of the reign of Cyrus. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and we'll we'll... Well, God will give us a uh, pretty incredible and unbelievably concise uh, synopsis or or description of of this entire process going from from Judah or from Jerusalem, uh, where, where Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem, all the way through until Cyrus gives his decree. I mean, God takes you know about 110, 111 years worth of history, and He sums it up in just a few quick paragraphs which is which is pretty incredible if you look at second chronicles 36 and we'll read we'll start in verse 15 36 15 and the lord god of their fathers sent to them by his messengers rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they mocked the messengers of god that sounds awfully familiar they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words. That sounds really familiar. Uh, and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Now, that's interesting to think about. God can send send prophets and preachers to a nation, and they can so reject his word to an extent that God says, <laughs> there is no remedy left. That means receiving his word is of the utmost importance and receiving correction from his word is unbelievably important. And when you, when you, when you can't make that distinction and you can't separate those two, you're going to find yourself in a bad spot. You're going to find yourself in some, some serious trouble. So they went to the point that there was no remedy and God had to deal with it. And, and you don't want to put God in that position. Verse 17 there, therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young, upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And then that, and them that had escaped from the sword carried, carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So there's that takeover. Babylon goes in and, 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 uh, you know, Judah reached a point of no remedy. God sent Babylon in, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar slew several people, burned down the temple, burned down all the homes of the, of the people of, of Jerusalem, and then took who was left into captivity, also leaving behind certain poor of the land. And they were in possession of the Babylonians 
until Persia assumed control of Babylon. And then they came to be under the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath. They were required to do that. They failed to do it. They refused to do it. So God God put the land in a situation where it had no other choice but to enjoy God's Sabbaths. To fulfill threescore and ten years, that's 70 years that were determined upon those people. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who, who is there among you of all this people, the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So Cyrus makes his decree. He's sending them back to Jerusalem. That picks us up in Ezra chapter one, verse one. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Cyrus gives God credit for this idea that he has to send Judah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. This is an incredible turn of events. Uh, this, this ruthless Gentile king comes in and slaughters Belshazzar, takes over the kingdom. And one of his first decrees within his first year is I'm sending Judah back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's temple. And that's amazing. That is, that is incredible and unbelievable that, that God would do that, did do that, And should encourage your heart to know that when God says he's coming back to get you, those of you that have trusted in his name, those of you that have called upon the name of the Lord, those of you that are washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, God promised, I'm coming back to get you. Just like he told these people in 70 years, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. And once those 70 years were accomplished, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Praise the Lord. Now, Cyrus gave his decree. Judah's going back to rebuild the house of God. To accomplish this, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, to accomplish this, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. He's out of the, out of the picture now. Babylon is in control of the, the Persians. Uh, Cyrus appointed a governor, and that governor was Sheshbazar. Now, we know him as, as Zerubbabel. They're the same person, and we're going to we're going to kind of show that here, but Sheshbazar is, point, is appointed governor. The vessels of the house of the Lord are take that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar were accounted for and returned to Judah. Now that's very important because in, in both Ezra and Nehemiah, an account was made of all the people and of all the vessels that were taken from the house of God when Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, 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 stormed into Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. And so when God sends Judah back, every one of those is accounted for. 
Now, if, if God would pay attention to that minute of a detail, if, if, his, if the vessels of his house are, are that important, how important are you and I? as vessels who carry the, the, the Lord, the, the God, the, the Holy Spirit, God himself in our bodies, how important would that be? And if God wouldn't let a single spoon from the house of God go, go missing, that means he's not going to let you go missing. That means that, you, you know, we are far more important and far more, far more, uh, you know, we, we were washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus. His blood was sacrificed on our behalf which makes us of of the utmost importance to God, and He will He will come and claim that which He has has redeemed, that which He has bought back, and so we're going to get to go with the Lord now. Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same person. I want to demonstrate that to you. Look at Ezra chapter five. Ezra chapter five, and we'll look first in verse fourteen. Ezra 5.14, and the vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon. Those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered unto one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he whom he had made, made governor. So here you have Sheshbazar. He's been made governor. The vessels of the house of God and the instruments of the house of God are turned over to him, and he's going to lead the people back to Judah. Look at verse uh, 16. Then came the same Sheshbazar and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And since that time, even until now, hath it been in building, and yet it is not finished. That's not a good good ending there, but uh, Sheshbazar is is uh, the person that is credited here with laying the foundation of the house of God. Now, that's important, and that kind of ties together ties him together with, uh, with Zerubbabel. Look at Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll put these two together and show you that they are the same person. Remember, God just said that Sheshbazar was the person who laid the foundation of of the house of God. And in Zechariah four, verse nine, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts uh, hath sent me unto you. And then when you read through uh, Haggai and Zechariah, he's repeatedly noted as the governor of Judah. So the Bible makes very clear uh, they're the same person and, and, and that's, that's notable. It's important. Something you want to know. It's just good to study and know who these people are in the word of God. Uh, so Zerubbabel and Jeshua lead Judah back to Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding the altar of God as the first thing that they wanted to do. Look at Ezra chapter three. And you say, I, I didn't know all these books were connected. I didn't either <laughs> until I started studying this and going through some of these things and learning, um, how tightly, how compact this time period is and all that took place here. And, um, and, it, and it all, it all essentially points to either the first coming of the Lord or the second coming of the Lord. This, this tightly packed period of history, um, that, that, you know, we, we assume that, that when we go from Genesis to Malachi, you know, we're covering 6,000 years of, of, you know, biblical history or human history. And so we, we, we try to, piece all that together, that's not, I mean, that's a relatively short amount of time, especially in light of eternity. And so when you start 
seeing how tightly connected these books are and the time periods they cover, it, it, it really starts to open the Bible up to you and, and becomes very enjoyable. It becomes a blessing to, to see and, and understand. Now, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel, and to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, that is extremely important. We're going we're to cover a few notes about that in just a moment, but let's keep reading. Verse 3, and they set the altar upon his bases. For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feast of the Lord, that were consecrated and of everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they're back in the land. They're putting all this together. They're, they they have some fear of the people round about them and the and the cities round about them, and they want God's protection. And they understand according to the law of Moses if they would worship God and be obedient to God according to that law, that he would provide them protection. So they immediately get the altar set up, and and it's it's of the utmost importance to note at the end of verse 2, um, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, they showed up. They didn't decide, you know— we need some new contemporary way, way of doing things. We need to, to, to help God out here. You know, we don't want to, want, we don't want to stick with that old way of doing things. They went right back to the law of Moses and did it exactly as God had written. They didn't, they didn't, uh, change anything. They didn't try to come up with some new way of doing things. They didn't, they didn't bring in a bunch of effeminate men wearing skinny jeans or any other type of garbage to try and bring in a crowd. They, they, they went back to the law of Moses and they said, what did God say to do back then? That's what we're going to do now. We're not going to cast any doubt on the word of God. We're not going to misuse the word of God. We're not going to, we're not going to Greek it and Hebrew it and, and, and cause people to, to somehow doubt that it's true or that it's not true or that we don't have it in our language or we do have it in our language. All these new methods that people come up with because they think they're going to help God out. That's not what they did. They went right back to the law of Moses and they asked themselves, what did God say in his word? That's what we're going to do. They didn't break the traditions. They didn't break the commandments. They didn't break the word of God. They didn't change anything. Now we're going to talk about their failure to complete what they were supposed to do. And there's a lot to be said about that. Even in our day, a lack of follow through in service to Jesus Christ and in service to God. But, but when they, when they got started, when, when the, the, the altar was built, it was done in accord with the law of Moses. Now, we're, they're hundreds and hundreds of years removed from that. 
They've been in Babylon for 70 years. They weren't, they weren't really practicing according to the law of Moses before they went into Babylon and take, were taken captive. If they had been, they would have kept their Sabbaths like they were supposed to. God would have had to have removed them from that land and, and, and put them in this terrible position because there was no other remedy. They come back to the land, understanding that they build the altar according to the law of Moses. And whatever your ministry is and whoever it is you're, you're, you're trying to impress or, or serve or, or minister to, it needs to be done in accord with the word of God. You don't need a new method. You don't need a new way of doing things. We don't need new, new, uh, systems. You don't need, uh, uh, you don't have to trick people into coming in with a pizza party or, or dancing girls or light shows or bands or any of that garbage. You need the word of God. And one of the reasons that our country and our churches are in the mess that it's in today is because of a reliance on schemes and methods rather than a reliance on the word of God. That's what's going to correct people's lives. That's what's going to help people's lives. That's what's going to build people up. So these people got back in the land. And the first thing they did was establish, we're going to build this altar according to the law of Moses. We're going to stick with the word of God. I hope you will stick with the word of God. And I hope you will stay faithful and true to the word of God. And in order to hear more about what happened, you have to come back next time. Thank you for listening and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.